The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Holy Father, we praise you. We delight in you. And we thank you for this day that you have given us. We count each day and each moment a blessing. Even those moments that don't seem to make sense, even those moments that hurt, even those moments that are hard, we know that they are all a gift from you and that they will all, in the end, serve your good purpose, your perfect plan, feeling all things to your glory and to our good. So, Father, as we approach your word today, just seeking to see a bit more of who you are, a bit more of what you've revealed about yourself and your plans in this world, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to rightly comprehend and believe in what you have revealed to us here. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand one more time. We return to our verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're still in the first chapter, reading verses 3 through 14. This is the holy, perfect, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We should receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory." In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you guard my lips and my mind? Help me to speak only that which is true. Would you guard these people's ears to only hear and receive that which is true? your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So we have come this morning to this 10th verse here in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it occurred to me as I was considering where would God lead us on this Lord's Day morning? What would he have to me for me to deliver to you as we considered this text and pulled the pieces apart and just sought to see his face, to see him a bit more clearly, to consider his plans and his purposes. And this one continual thought kept coming back to me, and that was, don't get too far in front of the headlights. That there's an illumination here in this word. This word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
And that there's a great danger when we try to outrun that illumination, when we try to go into the dark areas, those things that have not yet been revealed to us. I was reminded that Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, that we need to be very careful, not digging around, not poking our nose in places that God has not invited us to come, trying to unfold things that God has not yet revealed to us. And the reality is that men, very often, they get this backwards, don't they? We love to talk about the hidden things. We love to sit around and argue about the things that the church has argued about oftentimes for 2,000 years where there's no clear answer for us in Scripture. We love to sit around and banter about things that God has not revealed to us and he's not invited us to speak about while the plain truths of Scripture go largely untouched. Well, we don't dig into the plain things and the main things of Scripture as God has revealed them to us. Perhaps it's because we believe those things are boring. Perhaps it's because we believe that we have mastered them. Perhaps we believe that those are for the simple-minded, that the gospel, the plain gospel of Jesus Christ, that it has nothing to say to me any longer now that I've been serving God for 10 or 20 or 40 years. So what we find is very often people will they'll wrap themselves up and talk about eschatology instead of just making certain that they understand what is the gospel? Who is Christ Jesus? What is God's demand of me as I come and I hear this word of truth, this gospel of grace to me? I was reminded of the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 15 to 17, where he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth and avoiding irreverent babble. I don't want to be a man of irreverent babble. I don't want to be a man who gets up here and runs off at the head about things I have no clue about. Now, without a shadow of a doubt, when that day comes, when I stand in glory before the Lord, he's going to tell me that there are some things I have missed the mark on. There are some things that I have just completely whiffed, despite all my efforts, despite all our prayers, despite all our studies, buddy, you just whiffed. But I do not want it to be that I whiffed because I devoted myself to the unrevealed things, the things that God did not have for me. Also in the book of Titus, we see Paul saying, Titus 3.9, to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so as I considered all these things, the sum of all these things, and I considered this morning's text, and we're, we're talking about things that Paul calls mysteries, I thought it was right that we ask ourselves, is that what we're doing here? Is this a reverent babble? Am I poking around in places that God's not called us to? Am I, have I veered outside of my lane? There is always danger in that, of course, particularly the way that we study Scripture, not taking whole swaths and entire paragraphs or chapters, even verses at a time, oftentimes devoting an entire sermon to just one word. So I ask myself, is that what we have done? But then God reminded me of the second half of that verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29, for he does not just say that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but he says that the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. I was reminded of the words that I spoke to you last week, that what Paul calls here a mystery is not a puzzle that wise men are meant to solve. It's not a thing that's off limits to the ordinary mortal men. Quite different from that. This is a thing that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. This is a secret that God is telling. It's a thing that has been entrusted to the apostle Paul and the other apostles that they might hand it down to us. He's making known to us here, as the scripture says, the mystery of his will, that God's got desire for us to dig into these things. And I want you to think about just the scope of where he's taken us already. 
from the very beginning of this chapter, all the way back in verse 4, when he talks to us about things which he was doing before the foundation of the world. Who would ever know what God was doing had he not revealed it? Who would ever know what was in God's mind had he not spoken it? And yet he takes us exactly to that place. The Apostle Paul, he sweeps us up. And it really is marvelous stuff. It's your mind can't handle it. And if you really receive it right, you feel as though your heart's going to burst at times. Who am I that I should be looking upon this? Am I looking at something that I shouldn't be? And yet, it's exactly what he does. He sweeps us up and he shows us. What was God doing before the foundation of the world? And his predestining and his planning and his choosing and his willing to bring us to this place. And now in this morning's passage, as we come to verse 10, we find that he's now taking us to the end of the line. He's taking us to his plan for the fullness of time. From all the way from eternity past, all the way in to eternity future, the Lord of the universe is inviting you to behold a mystery. Do you see? What an incredible blessing. How often, when you were a child, did you long to just know what's happening and why? How often do we ask that as children? Why? 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 Where are we going? What's going to happen when we get there? And why? And don't you know that incredible delight that you have the encouragement that it is you feel like a big boy that one day when your dad looks at you and says okay son let me reveal some things to you let me tell you where we're going let me tell you how it's going to play out and let me tell you why let me tell you all the pieces I moved to bring us to this place now all of a sudden I'm in the big crowd I don't sit at the kid table anymore they've invited me to sit around the table the adult table and talk about why things are and where we're headed this is what God has done he's revealed this mystery to us what he was planning before the foundation of the world and where this plan ends for us. And again, he says here in this scripture that not only has he revealed these things to us, but he's given us wisdom and insight to understand. As I've told you over the last two weeks, this means that the simplest of mind can grasp these things. That your ability to understand the mysteries of God, your ability to wrap your mind around that which he has planned before the foundation of the world, or to look forward to where this whole thing terminates it is not wrapped up in the power of your intellect, and we praise God for this. You know that we preach hard things in this church, and again, that's a thing I'm constantly considering. I need you to know that I'm constantly asking God, what am I supposed to deliver to these people? Not just what, but how. There's men in this church right now that are praying for me in this moment as I preach because I'm constantly reevaluating how am I supposed to deliver this word? What portions of this word do you want run out before the people, and in what way do I deliver it? But I praise God that there's never a moment when I stand in this pulpit and I go, but are they too dumb to get it? Because that's not the way it works with God. It is not the power of the intellect. It is the working of the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to comprehend the deepest of mysteries, mysteries that were rooted in eternity past. One of my favorite scenes in all of C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia is from the magician's nephew, what is really the first book. And you see the scene there, the creation of the world. And it's this, it's this song going forth. And it's meant to be God's voice, his word going out and creating everything that is. And as I read that book, I can't help but have this longing in my heart. I wish I was there. I wish I was there to see this thing coming to fruition. He says, I'll do you one better. I'll take you to the planning. I'll take you to the purposing. I'll take you to what was in my heart before the foundation of the world. And then to make sure that you don't get lost along the way or too discouraged or disheartened by the world around you, I'll tell you where it's ending. I'll tell you where this whole thing is going. So we would be absolute fools then if we neglected this lavish grace. That's what Paul calls it. 
if we neglected this lavish grace that he has showered upon us in revealing these things to us. Not only would we be fools, not only would we be neglecting a gift from God, but scripture tells us we would be in great spiritual danger. As you come to the end of the book of Hebrews, the end of chapter 5, not the end of the book, the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, we see whoever the author was there warning the people. He has much he wants to say to them, many mysteries that have been entrusted to him by God that he wants to unveil for them. And he says, this thing is hard because you're slow of understanding. He says this, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unschooled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Beloved, what he's saying is there's a time for milk. We've got babies here on the front row. They're not ready for steak. It's a time for milk. It's a time for learning the basic things and being grown up. And yet if we were to look to a grown man, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old, a 60-year-old grown man sitting here in this congregation sucking on a bottle, we would all think it was gross, that something was stunted, that something is wrong, that the spiritually mature believer, that those who have grown in Christ, that they're the ones that are to move on to the meat, to the denser things, to the deeper things. But I want you to notice what he says here, that you would have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice this doesn't happen by osmosis you see we're a people who believe in the sovereignty of God that he literally ordains everything that comes to pass but at the very same time we know that he does this through the use of means through the efforts of men the power of Christ working in and through his people it means hard work through practice daily practice weekly practice the rhythms of life the whole of your day the whole of your week the whole of your month dedicated to growing in grace growing in faith growing in the understanding of the things of God I've had some talks this week with brothers about what this looks like oftentimes I think we bought into the infomercial line of thought with regards to spiritual growth there's everybody out there that sells you a pill right you take the pill you do a couple of push-ups, you get one good night's sleep, and then you're Captain America. But that's not the picture of Scripture. It's a daily bread. It's a constant feeding. It's taking your, taking your vitamins and going to bed at night and exercising and doing all these things that God has called you to do. Not that the power is in that, that the power is in God working through that. And that you may not even know the growth that he has ta- carried you through. That's the way this works. It's not I've taken my vitamins and all of a sudden everybody around me looks at me like I'm Captain America. It's I see a friend I haven't seen in six months, and they say, you're looking fit. You've not even recognized it yourself oftentimes. You don't know the ways in which your mind has grown and, 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 your, and your heart has expanded to know and to receive and to, and to delight and more things of God. And so, yes, absolutely yes, we continue to preach John 3.16. We had our membership class yesterday. It was five hours of almost nothing but the gospel. We don't throw away the elementary things. We don't throw away the foundation. The same gospel that led you to salvation will cause you to endure to the very end. So yes, we cling to those basic truths. We make sure that we never lose sight, that we never move on to these things, these mysteries, and lose sight of the basic truth that God has revealed to us in his word. But in love, he has chosen to reveal to us where this thing started and where it's headed. So my prayer for us is that by the time we leave here this morning, 
but you'll see the incredible gift that is found in this text. You'll find the incredible encouragement that comes for the child of God, knowing that while we don't know what waits for us tomorrow, we don't know who's going to punch us in the mouth a week from now, we know where this thing is headed. We know that it's all working according to God's plan. We know the end for which we have been called, and we can rejoice in this. I prayed earlier for Josh that he would have a masculine, a robust godliness. Does this mean that he needs to have all the answers? No. Does this mean that he needs to be the biggest and baddest man around? No. This means that he needs to live on his knees before the God who is, trusting in his plans and his purposes in every step. That's my hope this morning. You will see God's purpose and his plan for all that is and that you would find yourself to be brave and strong and immovable in that truth. So what he says here is that God has given us knowledge that his will is for a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now that word plan there, it's oikonomia. Sounds almost like the word economy, doesn't it? Oikonomia. And it can have two different meanings depending on the way in which it's used. You see, in, in, in one sense, if, if this word, this word for plan, if it's used of someone that sits under the authority of another, if this is a plan that's been entrusted, that's been given to someone else, then in that sense it carries the idea of a management or a stewardship, someone that is, that is, that is ordering things in accordance with his master. We see the Apostle Paul using it that way in the same letter. In Ephesians 3, 2, he talks about the stewardship that's the word, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So there can be this sense in which this plan, this economy, it can be entrusted to you by God, but you don't own it. You weren't a part of the planning process. How many times have I said from this pulpit, it's not that God doesn't have a plan, it's not that he doesn't have a purpose, it's not that he's capricious, it's that he didn't need your help to planning it out. He didn't need your input to setting the path. That's the picture here. That we're the ones who submit to the authority of the one who has planned all things, and we then are stewards. Specifically, the Apostle Paul says that he is a steward of God's grace. It's been entrusted to him for us that he could then deliver it. But then there's another sense in which this way can be used when you're the one that has the authority. When you're not the one that's seated under the authority of another, but that when you're the man that's developing the plan, and in that case, it means something more like a plan or a scheme or a well-thought-out economy. That there's this picture in which God is the one who submits to no one. God is the true and ultimate authority. We know that even the devil himself submits to God. God doesn't need the permission of anyone, not man nor angels. And yet we see the picture in the book of Job. See the picture of the, 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 the devil, Satan himself, having to come and submit himself to God. Whereas God says, this far and no longer. He says, my plan, my economy, my purposes are that you can touch Job in this way and no more. So we see the way in which God's plan, which is economia, is carried out here. That he is the one who has planned it. He is the one who has purposed it. He is the one who has directed it from all eternity, and no one tells him otherwise. He doesn't have to go check in. He's not consulting some blueprint. He's not just the builder, and there's an architect somewhere else. He is all in all. And so this fits, then, I think, this plan of this, this, this word, this, this, this thought, this idea of a plan that comes from the mind of God, it really fits with all that we have seen here in Ephesians chapter 1. You remember that I've drawn your attention to the word purpose as we see it throughout this little section that we're reading here. In verse 5, it talks about us having been predestined for adoption to himself according to the purpose of his will. We see it here again in verse 10 that this is all according to his purpose. 
You probably remember that I told you that that word purpose, it can also be translated as his good pleasure. And we're reminded that all these things that are playing out, from the planning to the accomplishing to the end of the line, that all of these things are there because it is God's good pleasure, because it pleases God. That it wasn't as though God looked out over the universe and he says, okay, I've got these three limited options. Which one's the best of the worst? You know, I had these options laid before me and I really desired to lead the earth in this direction, but you know, man sinned. Man rebelled. Man refuses to go along. And so therefore, while it would please me to go down this route, I can't do that. That's not the picture of scripture at all. That all of these things from the planning to the purposing to the accomplishing of redemption, that all of these things play out because, expressly because, it is God's good pleasure. Because he has desired it. He desires these things for us in love. Then there's another word that we see there, though, and it's the word will. It's exactly what it sounds like. Will uh, carries out these things according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, the mystery of his will. We're reminded that not only are these the plans and the purposes and the good pleasure that, that God has orchestrated from before the foundation of the world, but then his carrying out of those things are in accordance with what pleases him, what delights him, his well-thought-out plan. So we see in verse 1 that the Apostle Paul, he is one who has been called by the will of God. You remember that we talked about different will of God. Now, for us, when we think about will, it's almost exclusively that, what we want, that which we want. I'm hoping for mod pizza today after lunch, I mean after church. That's my will. May not happen. May not be God's will. But you remember that we talked about the fact that God can use the term will with regards to some things that he desires for mankind. He desires, it is his will that no one would ever sin, that no one would ever rebel against him. It is his will that none would perish. And yet we know that men perish. We know that men sin. We know that men turn their back on his law all the time. And yet we find the Apostle Paul standing here saying that I am an apostle of God because it was his will. Does that mean just because that's what God desired? That God hoped that someday there would be a little boy called Paul, that he would grow up to be a great apostle? So we get to verse 11, the next, text, the next verse coming for us. We'll see that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And immediately you get this idea that there's a will in God that always comes to pass. The sovereign will of God ordering all things whatsoever happen. That it isn't just what God pleases to do, it's what he actually accomplishes in and through his creation. Even when the wills of men are turned against God, it is always God's will which will win. It's always God's plan and his purpose that will come to pass. That the ultimate cause for everything that we're seeing here, therefore, we see, comes from the mind and the heart and the will of God. It was his good pleasure to carry out that plan. The economy of his will playing out in our life, that that's what we're witnessing here. He's telling us what was that plan from the foundation of the world. Not a plan that was given to me by another. Not a, not a plan that was limited by the sins of men or the, or the events of this world. The plan that came forth from God and God alone. And he says it is a plan for the fullness of time. Now that word time there, there's two words for time that you can find in, in the New Testament. There's the word kairos, which we find here. And it means the opportune moment or the season. Some places it's translated as the season. And you get the idea that all throughout Scripture, read through the Gospels, particularly during the life of Jesus, and you get the idea that there's an appointed time for certain things to take place, that God does things in season. I want you to think about Jesus with his mother. Whenever she wanted him to turn the water into wine at the wedding in Canaan, what did he say? My hour has not yet come. What did he say to his brothers in John 7 as they wanted him to go to Judea and do some more miracles? He says, no, my time has not yet come. And yet in Mark 1.15, we read him saying that the time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. So there's this idea running all throughout Scripture that God isn't just working willy-nilly and capricious through time, that he's got an appointed time, an appointed season, an appointed hour to do the things which he has ordained to do. But he says here, not just that it's time, he says that it's the fullness of time. That word means exactly what it sounds like, to fill up. We see the same word used in Mark 8 when he talks about the 12 baskets full of leftovers after Jesus has fed the 5,000. Not wanting to be wasteful, he sends the men out, perhaps preparing them for the mission ahead. He sends them out to pick up the scraps of the fish and the bread, and it says that they filled up 12 baskets. The same word is used in Romans 11 when Paul talks about this partial hardening that's come upon Israel. This hardening will remain until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we realize it isn't just a stacking up of moments one one upon another. This isn't about a quantity of things. It's more like a quality It's more like a thing that God has has brought to completion. It's the fullness for which this whole thing has been building, that that's the fullness of time, a plan for the fullness of time. Now, if you read, I think it's the King James Version, there's some translations of of this passage that you'll notice it has time as times because the word in Greek is plural. He's not just talking about the fullness of time. He's talking about the fullness of times. Does somebody have something other than ESV? The fullness of times. It's a plural thing. It's the proper time, but it's the properness of all the times. Now, as I mentioned, there's two words for time that are used in the New Testament. There's the word kairos, which means season or, or the appointed, the proper time for something. And then there's the word chronos, which is just the movement of time, the ordinary time. You think about what's this called, a chronograph, right? This is a, a phone, I mean a phone. Most people, they do look on a phone. It's a watch where I'm just watching the ticking away of minutes. I'm watching time going by. So there's two different ways where we can use this word time, and that's not completely lost on us today. You can imagine tomorrow morning, Monday morning, I'm going to get ready to take my girls to school. Abby's going to look to me at about 6.30, and she's going to say, Dad, it's time to go. What she means is the ticking of moments has gone to the point that it is 6.30. 6.30 is the time when we get in the car and we go to school. Otherwise, we're going to be late. But then there may come another day when Amanda looks to me and I'm not looking well or my heart's not acting right or something. When Amanda looks at me and she says, it's time to go to the hospital. Does she mean there's some time upon her watch? You know, at 11 o'clock at night, because that's usually where it happens, isn't it? Nobody ever wants to go to the hospital at night, but that's always when you end up calling for the ambulance. There's a time in which you must respond because it's the proper time. It's the appointed time. All things point to this being the right moment for you to get in the ambulance and go to the hospital. You see the difference? And so we see, now we don't get to need to get too fine with the way that we divide these two uses of the word time, because sometimes they're used almost interchangeably, but there does seem to be intent. Of course, there's intent behind Paul's use of each. We see in Galatians 4.4, he uses that word chronos. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It seems to me that in this moment, the apostle Paul is wanting to make clear that this was a thing that happened within the run of history. This wasn't just a hypothetical thing, a theoretical thing. This was the appointed time. This is a historical thing that we can point back to a calendar. If you were there, you could point back to the calendar, to a moment, to a day, to a second, when Christ Jesus broke into the earth. When the God who was outside of time stepped into time and took upon himself the fullness of flesh. But then there's also times when Paul uses this word and it has more of an idea of a season, of a proper moment. 2 Timothy 4.3, he says that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. He's talking about a season. He's not talking about a singular moment. 
There's not just going to be one moment when men don't endure sound teaching. There's going to be a time when men harden their hearts, when they close their ears. They want everything to be light and fluffy. They won't endure the teaching. And so we see here, as he uses this word, this, this fullness of time, it seems as though he's talking about the properness of a moment. It seems as though he's talking about this season. When he talks about the fullness of times, he's talking about the sum of all of those times. What have all those things been building towards? What's the capstone of all those seasons? It is this. Is there a chronological time in which Christ Jesus will come and fulfill the last bit of what his father has planned? Absolutely. The father knows that day. And yet, it's not just a point on a watch or a point on a clock or a point on a calendar when God has appointed his return. It's the proper time. It's the proper season. It's the exact moment when God has chosen that all things will come to their fulfillment. So we see this thing which has been inaugurated in eternity past, this thing which is being carried out now, that all of creation is flowing in this direction. I almost see it as he says the fullness of times, that there's all kinds of different seasons in this life, aren't there? There are seasons of mourning, and, and not all of us are in the same season, right? My watch says that it's 10 till 10, but it's a different time for every one of you in this room, isn't it? It'd be a time for sorrow, time for excitement, a time for anticipation, a time for fear. Who knows what? It's the same time for all of us, but it's a different time for all of us. And what he's saying is the fullness of all those times is this thing I'm about to reveal. Are you with me? So that we don't have to worry whenever we go through those seasons of mourning, when it looks like the world is out of control, when it looks like Satan might have won, when it looks like God might have forgotten you. We don't have to worry, has God lost his plan? Has God lost his purpose? Because what he says here is my plan wastes at the end of this thing like a bunch of little streams like a bunch of little rivers all running into the deep sea of my purposes, my good plan, my perfect provision, that all of these things, the fullness of them all, the capstone of them all, they're all leading towards this, that all of these eras, they're going to be crowned and they're going to be completed. They're going to arrive at God's plan. So he says it's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Now, I try to give you zero Greek ever because I'm not good with Greek, but there's a, there's a bunch of words that jump out at us here, and this word for unite here, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it because it's a big compound word. It's a super long word, but it's a word that's only used one other time in the New Testament as best I can tell, this word for unite, and it's used in Romans 13. Romans 13, 9, Paul says that for the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they are summed up in this word. That's the same word, summed up. That this is the sum of all things, the unity of all things that points to the sum. He goes on to say, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, for love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So there's this idea of fulfillment and summing up. That it's not just that all these things terminate at one point, but that the sum of all these things is this plan. Do you understand the difference? I've often talked to you about the reality that when we claim that we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, that oftentimes if we're not careful, what we can take that to mean is God's going to allow a whole bunch of really crummy stuff to happen in this life, but look, he'll do something good at the end. It's going to make up for all the bad. That's not at all the picture of Scripture. The picture is there's a plan in every single one of those moments, every single one of those seasons, every single one of those times, God is working good. And when we get to the end of this life, will the death of someone that you loved be good? No. Will it sum up into something good? Yes. And that this thing that God is doing for you, this thing that he declares to be good, that his plan, it would not be what it is without the sum of the parts. Do you understand? 
so that you can look back at the end of this life and say, God, I see not only that you're going to make up for the bad, but that you are using even that bad for my good, that the sum of it all is the greatest good, your glory and my greatest good in ways that would not have otherwise come. So he's saying here that this is the sum, the sum total, the unity, the fulfillment of all things. Again, not just of all time, but of all things. We're reminded that every single moment matters. Every single thing matters. We have this, we have these mountaintop, these, these, these super, these peak moments when you know things are really critical, right? You've had those moments in your life when you knew this is, this is a make or break kind of moment for my business or for my family or even for your faith. Those times when you knew that you were, you were in a certain spot at a certain time and you know this is a big, big, big decision. Or you look and you go, look, I can see God's hand very heavily upon me and my family and my church in this time. And you really are in tune with what he's trying to do and you're trying to honor him and you're spending time in prayer. You know, this is a big moment. You watch football games. Isn't that what they talk about? This is, all, this is the whole ball game right here. Isn't that what they say? This isn't the whole ball game. There were 59 minutes leading up to this moment. This isn't the whole ball game. But in a sense, yes, it's the whole ball game. But we are people who look back at every single one of those moments, every single one of those plays, every single one of the things that we encounter in this world, and we know that God has said they are fulfilled, they are summed up, they all come together in this, my plan. There's no meaningless moments. There's no meaningless things. Now, this can be an encouragement to you if you embrace what God's plan is. If you lean back and you rest in him. Because we won't then be tempted in those times of trouble and when things don't go the way that we want it. We won't be tempted then just to look ahead to the brighter days. We will find a way to thank him and find real joy right there. So he says that these things will all be summed up. They'll all be fulfilled, all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. So this is a favorite text, as you can probably imagine, for the universalist. Look, he says that all things will be summed up. All things will come together in Christ Jesus. Now, apart from the obvious answer that this very clearly shows us, if, if we were to hold to something like that, that what God is saying is all men in the end will be saved, it goes in direct opposition to all the rest of what Paul has to say, all the rest of what Paul teaches on whom will be saved and who's on the outside. There is one sense in which he is clearly talking about those which were are within the family of God. You'll see this call to unity and reconciliation when we get to chapter 2. Ephesians 2.16, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. He says that God is reconciling us both to God in one body through the, through the cross, thereby killing hostility. So there is one sense in which he is talking about gathering those into the kingdom of God, both Jews and Gentiles. There's a, a dividing wall of hostility between them, and he's breaking down that barrier. And he's making sure that free and slave and man and woman and, and, and Gentile and Jew, that they are all coming together in one family. And so, yes, in one very real sense, he is talking about bringing those under the kingship of Christ Jesus. He is talking about eternal life in the kingdom of God. But again, there's far too many passages where he talks about those who are inside and those who are outside. So there has to have some different meaning here then. Because I don't believe that in this verse, chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, I don't believe that he's only talking about the Jews and the Gentiles being united in Christ Jesus because he says here, all things in heaven and on earth. So in what way can he say that all things will be united in Christ? If all men won't stand in heaven, if Scripture plainly claims that it's only those who are found in Christ Jesus who will see eternal life and all the rest will be separated from him for all eternity, in what way then can he say that all things in heaven and on earth will be united in Christ Jesus? 
Well, Philippians 2.9 seems to paint one picture of that. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue confessing Christ Jesus is Lord. Now if you get to the end of the book, you look at Revelation 6.15, it shows a picture of those who are damned those who have lived in opposition to God and those who are found outside of Christ, that when that day comes, they will be crying out to the rocks to fall upon them, to cover them from the wrath of the Lamb to come. So the clear picture is every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, all glory to God the Father in Christ Jesus, the King of the earth, but that some men will be bowing in joy and some men will be bowing in terror. We're reminded that no man escapes the kingship of Lord Jesus. There's no amount of sinning, there's no amount of running, there's no amount of rebelling, there's no amount of denying that he is who he is that will exclude you from his kingship, from his reign, from his rule, and being used in him to the glory of the Father. So he says here, all things in heaven and on earth united together. What does he mean by this? Seems to me that he's not just pointing to, there's, there's different ways in which scripture talks about heaven. There's the first heaven, which is generally where the birds fly, just the things that are just kind of above us, the things that we can see. And then there's the second heaven, which is where the stars are and the moon and the outer space, the things I like to look at through a telescope. But then there's the third heaven, what might properly be called the realm of God, where God dwells, where God makes his presence, his blessed presence most fully known. That's an invisible place. As best we know, there's only two maybe three bodies there depending on how you understand the scripture we know that Christ Jesus is there with his physical body having been resurrected and seated at the right hand of the father we know that there's a man named Enoch that perhaps is there with his with his with his body maybe Moses maybe Elijah depending on how you understand the mount of transfiguration but this is an invisible world it's not a place that we can that we could get to on our own again as i told you last week no rocket ship we could jump in no slingshot we could fire off, no, no way that we could get to this, and yet it's this, it's this invisible world, this spiritual world. And at the same time, we talk about the earth, which is the, the visible world, the physical world, that which is all around us. And there's times when we can see these two worlds coming together. I want you to think about it, Jesus' birth, when the angels from heaven, they met with those shepherds in the field, and they, they cried out to them, they delivered to them this good news. I want you to think about God's voice at Jesus' baptism booming down from heaven. I want you to think about the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus pulled back the veil to his flesh, and all and the glory of God was revealed to those who stood upon that mountain. So there are those moments when the veil is pulled back. There are those moments when we see heaven breaking into earth, but he's talking about a time when they will be united as one. When this spiritual world, this world that is yet unseen by human eyes, when this world will be united with the physical world, with the earthly world, with the tangible world that's around us that we taste and touch and see. Now there's something that's lost in the English, English translation of this text. It's a, there's a prefix on that word. and it's, it's Anna. It means again. It means united again. Some of the older translations say that, that he would again unite in Christ Jesus the heaven and the earth, the invisible spiritual realm and the visible earthly realm, the physical realm that we can see around us. United again. When were these two realms united? When was heaven and earth properly united? Well, I'd direct your attention first to the Garden of Eden. It was there in the garden when we read that God himself, the Lord himself, walked through the garden in the cool of the day. It was there where people enjoyed blessings in the presence of God and then we know then with the fall 
with the rebellion of Adam and his wife Eve, that everything got disjointed and broken. That Adam and Eve, they were, they were left, they were caused to leave the garden. That they're the cherubim with the flashing swords. They stood at the gate to make sure that they did not yet enter in. And that chaos came along with this. Romans 8 talks about the whole of creation groaning and longing for that day when heaven and when earth will be united as one. Because everything had been broken in that moment. It was not as it should be. Peace was lost. To steal a famous line, paradise was lost. And we see pictures of this playing out all throughout the Old, the Old Testament is you see the cherubim that stand there at the Garden of Eden restricting access from humans into the blessed presence of God, into that place. We see pictures of this like in the tabernacle, like in the temple. You see the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies where God's presence is. This is meant to be a picture of the garden, a reminder that man has been separated from God because of our sin, because of our rebellion, that we cannot just come freely however we wish into the presence of God. And so there seems to be this picture then that we're longing, we're looking forward to that reunification that re-coming together of the physical and the spiritual. Well, man will dwell with God and see him face to face. We will see him as he is. So we see a picture of this in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, I think. This restoration, this reunification of all things in Christ. He says this, speaking about the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So the clear picture that Christ Jesus is the one who created all that is, who sustains all that is, all things, visible things, invisible things, dominions, rulers, authorities, powers, the earth, your body, all of it from Christ Jesus, sustained by Christ Jesus. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. There's another word for reunification, reconciling all things to himself, whether on heaven and earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the picture of the unification, the bringing back together of that which was separated by the fall. All things, yes, human beings, Jews and Gentiles coming back together. What did we see in the Garden of Eden with the fall? Immediately the man and his woman, they, his woman, the man and his wife, the woman, they turned on each other, didn't they? They turned on God. They sought to hide from God. And so there was not only disunity between them and God, there was disunity between them and each other. There was disunity on the earth as things became hard. As he would work by the sweat of his brow, labor would become laborious. It would become difficult. His own body itself would ultimately die. Even the animals that lived on the earth, we see death coming in at that moment. So we've got this promise of the reunification of that which was lost in the garden. But even above and beyond that, something greater. We read in Isaiah 11, he's talking about the wolf lying down with the lamb and the baby able to put his head over the cobra's den and that there's, there's no, no tears, that God wipes away all our tears and that there's, all things are perfect, even higher, even greater than what it was in the garden because there man will not fall. Their man will be glorious in his resurrected body. Their man will stand in the presence of God for all eternity to enjoy all these spiritual blessings that he has promised to pour out upon us. So we know that true and perfect order and peace and unity and all that we long for. Are you tired of disunity? Are you tired of your body betraying you? Are you tired of this world not being the way that you know it should be? We see in this text that all of that, the answer to all of that, is only in Christ. That's been God's plan from before the foundation of the world. 
What he planned from before the foundation of the world, yes, even in the fall, was that in Christ Jesus, his son, to his glory, he would unite, even recreate to something better that which was lost in the garden, that which sin has brought upon us. That that's been his plan from the beginning, and that's what he's been administering. He's been carrying out in all eternity. There's a purpose for all these seasons, all these things in this life. It's fulfilling. It's uniting. It's summed up in this, the reunification of that which was lost plus some. So that while we don't know what tomorrow looks like, we don't know what the challenges of tomorrow will look like. We don't know the sorrows of tomorrow will look like. We don't know any more than the rest of the world knows. We know where this thing ends. Now you look around you, though, and what does the world do? When it looks like nothing but chaos around us, they give us all their stupid answers. If we would just do this, if we would just subscribe to this program, if we would just worship this false God, they don't call a God, but if we would worship these false gods that they put before us, then unity would come. We would finally be all united as one. Do you think it's any wonder that the world now promises, promises us that if we would just play along with their plans, they could heal the earth? They can heal humanity. They can heal the earth. They've got a drug to give you peace in your spirit. They promise all things that they can bring unity, and we know that all of that is fool's gold. It's a fool's errand. We're the ones who sit, and we know that in Christ Jesus, it will all come together even better than it's ever been. But I want to show you one more thing. One more thing, I think. I hope I can show you this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I was reading through his sermon on this text, and he says this. Do you realize that we have a part in these things? As I said, I do not know whether another world war is coming, but whether there's going to be war or not, as Christians, we are in this plan of God. No bomb can be invented, no bacteria can be cultivated and used, no chemicals or gases can be brought to use that can ever make the slightest difference to these things. Sounds like he was living in a time a lot like ours, doesn't it? I don't know if there's going to be war. I don't know if there's going to be a chemical weapon. I don't know if there's going to be some new bacteria or virus. But I know that none of these things will make the slightest difference. That is God's plan as revealed in Scripture. And God's plan will be carried out. And if you and I are in Christ, we are involved in it. We are destined to be elevated and restored to what man was meant to be. We shall be lords of the creation with Christ. So while I'm talking to you about these things that will find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus, under the eternal reign of Christ Jesus to the glory of God, beloved, you need to recognize that he who has been called our head, that we who have been called his bride, that we are united with him in these things. Ephesians 1.20, we're going to get to this one in a few months, that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He gave him his head to the church, that we are his body, that he is our head, the one who sits upon the throne, the one who reigns above all rule and authority, the one in whom all things are united, the one who ushers in this new heavens and this new earth and a perfection the likes of which we could never imagine, that he is our head and that we are his body, that we belong to him and he belongs to us. Let me take it one step further. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this. He's dealing with a church that's divided. A church that's boasting and who they follow and what they know and where they've been. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 3.21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world 
or life or death or present or the future, all things are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Beloved, that's as extravagant a promise as you will ever hear. That not only will all things be summed up in Christ Jesus, not only will he be Lord of all, but that we too, as his bride, as his body, as his temple, that we too will be there reigning with him. I was picturing as I thought about this, we think about he is the groom and we is the bride. I was considering what it must be like if you were to ever marry somebody and find out later that they are the richest man ever to live. You come to somebody and you love him for who they are. You marry this man and you recognize he is the greatest king that has ever lived and now all of his kingdom is mine. But this is the picture of what we have in Christ Jesus. The world, the world, life, death. Do you realize this means that death now serves you? And present and future that all things bow in service to you, not because of you, but because of your king, because of your head, because of the bridegroom, because of the one that you've been united to in faith, Christ Jesus. Lest you think I'm exaggerating, Romans 4.13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that we would be heirs of the entire world. Matthew 5.5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me at my throne as I also conquered and sat down at my father, with my father on his throne. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 12. This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Do you understand then the foolishness for us bickering and fighting and becoming anxious over anything in this life? It's all ours. It's all ours. And he's saying in Christ Jesus, the way that this thing is headed, the sum of all the world, the fulfillment of all times, it is all going to be head up in Christ Jesus, and he is yours, and yours is his. Therefore, all things are yours. Time serves you. Life serves you. Death serves you. The world serves you. Do you understand? Not the way that the world tells you. Not that all things are going to be roses here and now, but we know that at the end of this thing, with Christ Jesus, we shall reign. So that we, therefore, in the words of Colossians 3, 1, we're to set our minds on the things that are above and not these earthly things. We don't bicker over the things that are wasting away. We set our heart on him. We set our hope in him. We set our eyes on him, knowing that the victory that he has won, we too shall enjoy the eternal spoils for. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. We thank you for your revelation of your plan for us in him. Father, we thank you for the salvation and the hope of eternity that's found in him. Father, I pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds, help us to hold fast to these things, and to derive from them great courage. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.